You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Last week, Lucas covered chapter 10. There we learned um, that Daniel was a man beloved of God, and his prayer actually moved the spiritual realm to aid Daniel in understanding the visions he, uh, concerning the coming kingdoms. So this was an amazing revelation. Otherwise, without this, we would have very little uh, knowledge of the spiritual world, like what's going on behind the scenes. And God was kind enough here and there in Scripture to kind of unveil, to reveal a little bit to us, hey, this is what's going on in my end. You, you, know, you have your end, your perspective, where we see like choices, and we, we see you know, we're voting, we're going to elections. But you know, there's also behind the scenes where God is, says, actually in Daniel, he says, I raise up kings, and I take kings away. So really, it's under God's control. Um, so as I said, they should be lumped together. And, and speaking of long chapters, this is the longest one. So this is the longest uh, chapter in that three-part um, vision. It's the same vision. Uh, coming in at 45 verses. So we're going to have uh, some ground to cover today. Um, I hope you've all brought your appetite this morning because at some points you'll feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose, but I hope that's okay. And I want to give a final disclaimer. Uh, this chapter um, is not a, uh, a very nice three-point and a conclusion type of sermon that we're so used to. Um, in fact, some professors have even said uh, to avoid teaching on this chapter entirely because uh, uh, it's not, you know, uh, homiletically friendly. It's not a three-point message, and it makes you feel good, and you go home, and you're like, yay. Um, luckily for you, we don't shy away from the Word of God. We believe all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So, you know, thankfully, we'll be covering this chapter as well. So, as I've said, um, you won't be getting the three points today. However, I've divided this into three sections. So this chapter will be divided into three sections, so maybe that could be your little, you know, takeaway. Uh, the first section, verse 1 to 20, is pre-written history. Um, verses 22 to 35, Antiochus, a picture of the Antichrist. And verses 36 to 45, the Antichrist in fullness. So this section might seem a little dry for some, but it's in the scripture and it's there for a very definite purpose. Um, we will cover them uh, we'll cover the purposes at the end, so just kind of keep that in mind. Um, if anyone has brought a notebook or a Bible, they can perhaps insert some names and dates. Um, it's very helpful in the future. Um, this is a great example of a time where historical commentary can make your appreciation of the Bible more real and exciting to you. So if you ever go back in time, you read this section, you might be totally lost. If you write some notes down, it's going to be helpful, guys. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to start by asking the Lord to guide us through this chapter. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, you're so gracious to us to give us liberty in this, uh, in this land to join uh, together with brothers and sisters that seek to understand your word and understand a, uh, a chapter that's a little bit more obscure uh, to most churches, perhaps, um, where some have decided that Chapter 11 has no meaning or very little meaning. Um, I thank you that you have laid it on our hearts, uh, Summit Church, that uh, we would endeavor to take upon ourselves uh, this chapter and to explain it 
And to give you all the glory, um, I pray that the Holy Spirit might work this morning uh, because it's not my words. Um, I'm just a vessel. I'm, I'm nobody. But it's, it's just your, your text. You've written this. You've given us um, this today, Lord God, for a very definite purpose. And I pray that your spirit would be here to reveal it to our hearts and to oppress upon our hearts um, the meanings of these things. Um, Lord, I'm, I'm relying on you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, let's begin. Uh, part one, pre-written history, verses 1 to 20. We'll go verse by verse. So instead of me reading the whole section, if I read 45 verses, by the time I finish the 45 verses, you have no idea what I just read. So <laughs> let's, let's uh, take it chunk by chunk. So verse 1 I'm reading. Also, in the first year of king of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So who's speaking? If you guys remember, we, um, this is a continuation of chapter 10. And we left off with an angel, most likely we said would be Gabriel, speaking. This was occurring during, uh, during the reign of Darius the Mede. If you recall, this is the time period of Daniel's experience in the lion's den. Remember when we were studying Malachi? Um, this was quite a while back. Uh, he was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And there was a 400-year silent period. Well, Daniel's vision actually bridges the gap of that, um, uh, the gap of that 400-year silent, so-called silent period. God demonstrates that he is with his people even when he is seemingly silent. He is with them even in their most severe suffering. Verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will rise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. And his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So these are some of the most remarkable examples of pre-written history. In fact, most liberal critics will attack the book of Daniel and demand a late date for the book. The logic goes like this. If the book of Daniel was written at around 530 B.C., which is what we believe, um, and the prophecies were so accurate, uh, that would be a miracle. And we know that miracles don't exist, so therefore it has to be a late date, right? Um, if anyone uh, comes to you and, and you know, gives you that remark and tries to challenge you, uh, you just have to say one word, uh, the Septuagint, and uh, they're going to be kind of sweating a little bit. <laughs> Um, the Septuagint is actually the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was compiled about 285 B.C., roughly. And uh, so it, one of the books that was uh, translated was the book of Daniel. So that would prove that, hey, this is not you know, the late date of Daniel. Um, in fact, one story goes that as Alexander the Great entered Jerusalem in about 334 B.C., he was shown the text of Daniel, and he was so impressed with it, he worshipped at the temple, according to uh, Flavius Josephus in his uh, antiquities work. Now, let's identify these kings from Persia. We talked about four kings, and we're going to just identify the ones that the Bible explicitly speaks of. Uh, we know of Darius I, uh, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, and Asuerus. This final rich king is the same king found in the book of Esther. So that's a kind of a fun fact. He fought against Greece, but he was soundly defeated 
and it eventually caused a Greek to rule in Persia, which is what we're going to see. So I'm reading verse 3. Then a mighty king shall rise, who's, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. Who is this mighty king? Anyone? Yep. Alexander the Great. So we, we've already kind of uh, talked about him a few times. Alexander the Great, 335 B.C. In chapter 2, uh, he's, um, his kingdom is kind of like the, if you remember the, the statue, his kingdom is the bronze uh, thighs. And he's also the, uh, the leopard with the four wings. His life actually has a spiritual l- l- lesson for us. This great conqueror who conquered the known world could not conquer himself. So Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And whoever rules his spirit, that he who takes a city. Uh, basically meaning, um, you know, you can conquer a city, but if you can't conquer yourself, this is the first battlefield. It's useless. Uh, you can be a strategist, but this was the hardest um, conquering for Alexander. You know, he conquered the known world, and he said, oh, there's nothing left to conquer. All he had to do was look at himself, and he would have never won that battle. Um, many of us still struggle with that today. So what is the biblical implication of Alexander's conquest? Have you ever thought of that? His conquest set up the Hellenistic period of time, which perpetuated Greek culture, uh, meaning art, music, and language, which was the most important. Um, What is our New Testament written in? Anybody? Yep, Koine Greek. Uh, It is such a precise language that God used to tell the world and reveal his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, For example, in our language, there's one word for love. In Greek, there's four words for love. Uh, God set up the language of the New Testament. So that's just simply amazing. Verse 4. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. Alexander the Great dies and does not have a son to pass his kingdom down down to, so the kingdom is divided between his four generals, the four wings uh, on the leopard. Uh, Two are important because they deal with Israel, while the other two are kind of ignored, are not mentioned throughout this this prophecy. So we talked, um, just to kind of name them, Cassander took over Macedonia, Lysimachus, modern Turkey or Asia Minor, uh, Seleucus, Nicator, Syria and the Middle East, and Ptolemy took over Egypt. All four families warred against themselves until they lost their kingdom eventually to Rome, which is kind of funny. Uh, This is a little picture of the futility of the lust for power. Eventually, someone comes along and takes it. (laughs) Um, Or or you cannot take it to the grave, even if you have the power. Uh, Every dictator has their day in the sun until it is taken from them. And eventually, uh, Christ will take it back for himself one day as we patiently wait. Verse 5. Also, the king of the the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. South of what? What are we talking about? Uh, This is south of Israel. We have 
as I mentioned earlier, Ptolemy I, Soter, as the king of the south, and Seleucus I, Nicator, as the king of the north. Okay, just to kind of, now it's kind of transitioned into, uh, the rest of the chapter is going to be basically about a warring between the north and the south. So this is where it can kind of be redundant. You're like, man, I'm kind of confused what's going on. So I'll kind of uh, put some flesh on this and say, okay, this is the king of the south, this is the king of the north, what happened? Um, verse 6. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who beget her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So what, what's going on? After some time passes, Ptolemy II comes to rule uh, Egypt, and he sends his daughter, Berenice, to Antiochus II to solidify an alliance. Uh, the problem is Antiochus is married to Laodice, his first wife. Antiochus is forced to divorce his wife and marry Bernice. Uh-oh. Laodice becomes jealous and kills Bernice and Antiochus. <laughs> Poisons them. Um, there's that old saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That's right, Nina. <laughs> you know. Laodice <laughs> um, puts... Puts her son, Seleucus II, Callinicus, uh, to rule. And this really reads like a soap opera, you know, back and forth, you know, take the wife, kill her, whatever. <laughs> anyway, if you're, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, verse 7 and 8. But from the branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Okay, so this is revenge. The brother of Bernice, uh, Ptolemy III, is angry and avenges his fallen sister by invading and killing Laodice and taking spoils back to Egypt. Awesome. It was recorded that he took 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and 2,500 idols, and, you know, just as a side note, I always find it funny when people um, worship idols and they see their gods being taken away and they're like, oh, no. And, uh, you know, they're, they're so helpless to, um, their God is so helpless in that situation. Um, that type of God becomes the burden that you have to save instead of the God saving you, which we saw again and again in Daniel, where Daniel's God was saving him and these gods are just being taken from one place to another and people are crying. Um, you know, the other interesting thing is, does it like, mean anything to you when I read you know, 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver? It's like, what? Okay, that's a, an amount of money. Uh, modern value, so I, I always like to modernize it. The modern value would be 56 billion in gold, 163 million in silver, plus idols, and we have to you know, take into account some of the most expensive idols were made out of gold and silver, so precious stones. So this is uh, billions of dollars. This was a, a good uh, revenge. Got him. Um, verse 9 through 10, I'm reading. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces 
and one shall certainly come and overwhelm him and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Okay? After losing much wealth, that we talked about, billions, being humiliated and losing his mother, uh, Seleucus II sought to invade Egypt but was unsuccessful. Seleucus II died after falling off a horse, interestingly enough. His son, uh, Seleucus II Soter, reigned for a short time and was killed in a military campaign uh, in Asia Minor. Next in line was Seleucus III and Antiochus III, so two sons, basically. Uh, the, um, they, one of them actually became a ruler at the age of 18. Uh, can you think or can you imagine ruling a nation uh, yourself at 18? Um, what a scary thought. I think of someone like Logan Paul or a TikTok star ruling today. Oh. Um, I suppose the other extreme would be a 79-year-old man ruling. Wouldn't be, wouldn't be much better. It's a good thing we don't have that in our country. I'm just going to pass that, that over. Verse 11. The kingdom of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and with much equipment. So this speaks of the king of the south is uh, Ptolemy IV at this point. Uh, he successfully drove Antiochus III back. Ptolemy slaughtered thousands, but after a brief pause, Antiochus returned with a much larger army and drove Ptolemy back. So this is kind of like that back and forth that we're going to see here and there. Verse 14 to 16. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north um, shall come and build a siege mound around and take a fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. The violent men that we talked about, um, I think it was at the beginning of verse 14, were actually uh, Jewish robbers. This time was terrible for Israel because their land was a battleground for these two empires. During this time, Philip IV, uh, I think he was from Macedonia, joined Antiochus III against Egypt. The Jews joined Antiochus thinking they would be rewarded, um, but it turned out worse for them, actually, go figure. Antiochus captured the fortified city, which was uh, Sidon. So we'll move on. Verse 17. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or be for him. So this brings us to about 198 to 195 B.C. Um, Antiochus the Great made a treaty with Egypt, and this is like round two, and we're going to see like similar things where, all right, I'm going to give you my daughter, and we're going to form an alliance, right? An alliance? Uh, not really. Um, 
the daughter of women, that's actually Cleopatra. And, you know, I did some research. It's hard to, like, pinpoint her because there was actually eight Cleopatras in history. It's like, okay. Uh, but he gave his daughter uh, Cleopatra to Ptolemy V. Um, she, was, she was given so Antiochus could spy on his enemies. Um, Ptolemy just kind of assumed that his daughter would be on his side, you know, like, you're my daughter, you know, blood is thicker than water kind of thing. Um, but when she got there, the, uh, the king was like a young boy, and it wasn't like really for love, but as he grew up, she actually fell in love with him, and she aligned with Egypt against her father, which was like another soap opera moment. Um, verse 18 to 19. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the, repro the reproach against them to, to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. All right. So this is going to happen again in, uh, a little bit later in a couple of verses. Antiochus III uh, and then turn his attention to the Grecian islands. However, he did not succeed because a ruler or commander actually from Rome, up and coming world power, Rome, turned Antiochus back to his own country. He shall stumble and fall, refers to Antiochus the, the III fell down some stairs a year later and died. Uh, imagine fighting all those battles and winning but losing to some stairs in the end. So, very dangerous, guys. Uh, verse 20, we're basically closing out the pre-written history part, okay? There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And this is remarkably accurate. I mean, to predict something so accurate like this, it's, it's uh, unheard of unless it, it really does come from God. Antiochus III's son, Seleucus IV, Philopater heavily taxed his people to pay Rome. Um, the glorious land is speaking of Israel, so he heavily taxed the Jews. But he was poisoned by his treasurer, Heliodorus. Um, this is a good lesson for any nation wanting to raise taxes uh, too high. See what happens. Your people turn against you. Have you read about the Inflation Reduction Act that does nothing to lower inflation but adds 87,000 IRS agents? Um, it seems like Roman tax collectors are making a comeback. Uh, but I digress. Okay, the next section um, runs from verses 21 to 35. This is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. It's all about his life, his exploits, and how he really starts to prefigure this future king, the, the final king, the Antichrist. So I'm reading at verse 21 to 22. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. So introduced to us now is this vile person, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king of Syria, king of the north, and is easily identified in history. In fact, these prophecies are so easy, they, they like fit like a glove, as one commentator said. It's, it's obviously him. Um, he called himself Epiphanes, which means illustrious one, which uh, Lucas uh, told us uh, during chapter 8, 
but he was so unstable and crazy, uh, the, the Jewish people nicknamed him Epimenes, which means uh, the crazy man or the madman. Um, what a reputation. Uh, the throne rightfully belonged to Demetrius Soter, but Antiochus uh, obtained the throne through intrigue. He was accepted as ruler because he was able to turn aside an invading army. Uh, he also killed the high priest Onias III, called the Prince of the Covenant, that we saw in uh, verse 22. Verse 23 to 24. And we'll kind of see how his life progresses and evolves. And after... The league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time." So after his military victories, Antiochus Epiphanes rose to power with a small number of people. He tried to redistribute wealth, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. It seems so up to date. Um, don't we see something like that kind of happening today to some extent? Taking from a few wealthy, you know, tax the rich and benefiting the poor to essentially buy the masses, it seems. Um, it seems like it'll never grow old. Like communists took it out of Antiochus's playbook seems like. Um, verse 25 to 27. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up into battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings hearts shall be, shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the time of the end will still be at the appointed time. So after Antiochus consolidates power, he fought against Egypt in uh, 170 BC. Egypt had a larger force, but was defeated by Antiochus. The victor and loser basically sat at the same table together and made promises that they both broke. Uh, in the end, they were both deceptive. We know that the Antichrist will be deceptive with the Jewish people as well. Uh, he establishes a peace treaty with Israel in the last days. Um, Daniel 9.27 tells us that in the middle of the week, the middle of the three and a half years, he breaks the treaty and he takes away the sacrifices. We read in Revelation that he sets up an image to himself in the temple and in this manner desecrates uh, the temple, just as Antiochus similarly does in this chapter. So I'm just kind of giving you like a little preview. We'll go more, a little bit more into depth of what I'm talking about there. Verse 28. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So what is this talking about? Uh, he had failed to conquer Egypt, and on his way home, Antiochus took out his frustration on the Jewish people and on their temple. He killed many, and we see that Jesus refers to this um, as the age of the Gentiles, when Gentile powers would trample over Jerusalem. Notice that God set the Jews in a location that connects north and um, north. In the north, it's basically uh, uh, the Middle East plus Asia, and in the south, it's Africa. It's stated um, that Israel is the center of the world or the navel, 
like the belly button, the, the center of the world. And um, you can't go north and south without crossing there. So the, so the Gentiles are like just constantly using Israel as the battleground. They're just up, up and down, up and down. Um, and it's terrible. And they're just kind of smacking around the people as they, they go through and doing whatever they please. Uh, verse 29 to 30. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against them, therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage, so he shall return and show regard for, uh, for those who forsake the holy covenant. So this is, uh, again, part two. He's frustrated again, and he does the same thing. Uh, we see like a pattern being established here. Two years later, in 168 BC, Antiochus moved against Egypt and was opposed by ships of Cyprus. Uh, that actually speaks of Rome. Roman commanders told Antiochus, so what they did was um, they got him out um, for like a little meeting, and they, they drew a circle around him, and they said, you have to move back. And Antiochus asked for time, and when he asked for time, they drew that circle around him in the sand, and they said uh, he must answer before he leaves the circle. So it's like, ugh. Uh, Antiochus reluctantly submitted to Rome, for to defy them meant war with Rome. He went to his home uh, humiliated and in shame, which is not good news for Israel, as we will see. History repeats itself, uh, this time in a much more severe way. He was a master of setting up factions of Jews against themselves one another. He allied with the liberal Jews that were willing to go along with his um, uh, idol worship and the demands, and he persecuted the Jews that were faithful to their God, to the covenant. So he set Jew against Jew, brother against brother. Verse 31. And the forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. At this time, over 100,000 Jews were slain. He took away the daily sacrifices and offered the blood and broth of a pig, um, which I believe we, we talked about a little bit in, in um, possibly chapter 8. And he set up the image of Zeus to be worshipped in the holy place. If you recall, Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 24, speaking of another abomination of desolation yet future, um, as was mentioned earlier. So in a very similar way, Jesus was alluding to a future abomination of desolation being set up in the temple. And so, you know, we think about it today, there's no temple. But you have to realize that when Daniel was writing this, there was no temple in his day either. So it's a very interesting thing that in order for this to happen, logic goes, well, there has to be a temple. Verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Um, so what is this speaking of? This is a very interesting point in history. Although a few Jews betrayed their countrymen, others rose up and would do exploits. It would be there, during this time that God raised up uh, the family of the Maccabees, and Maccabees means hammer, so the hammer came down. In 166 BC, Mattathias, the priest, raised a revolt against Antiochus. It started off small, but more and more joined as they gained strength and victory. Um, so this is really that time period that really sets up even the, um, the uh, 
politics of Jesus' time, where you have like uh, a swing from liberal uh, Judaism to conservative. Now they are really going into their law and uh, basically setting up the, uh, the, the, the temple and the Sanhedrin of Jesus' time. So verse 33 to 35, and this basically will end the Antiochus saga. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with, uh, with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for an appointed time. So, the suffering that the faithful endured served to refine and purify them. That's pretty much what we read. Um, this time of persecution was, was short-lived. It was previously revealed in uh, chapter 8 that, uh, to Daniel that the temple would be desecrated for 1,150 days. Daniel was assured that this persecution would run its course and then be lifted for there's going to be another appointed end time. Friend, I have news for you. In this life, you are going to suffer, and I am going to suffer. Uh, as one commentator put it, no one gets out of this alive. That's the unfortunate reality of living in a fallen world. The beauty of our Father is that he has written to us about it. Uh, he doesn't just ignore it or sweep it under the rug, uh, as the world religions do. He confronts it. Not only does he confront it, but he enters into our suffering. Isaiah 53.3 He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. If you're suffering today, whether physically, mentally, or spiritually, why don't you go to him in prayer and tell him? Pour out your heart before him. He is called the God of comfort and he'll give you strength because he knows what it means to suffer. Much can be said about this topic, but we must move on. This last section, verses 36 to 45, um, are eschatological. They are still future even from our day. They look forward to the time of the end when the final king will exalt himself and do similar things to Antiochus did in his day. If you are casually reading, it's very easy to miss, but the things described here have no parallel in history. And at this point, I'd like to transition to a video. Uh, the final section we are uh, transitioning into speaks of the final ruler that chapter 11 has been building up to, um, verses 36 to 45. Throughout scripture, there are many uh, pictures of Jesus. Um, just as there are pictures of the Savior, there's also pictures of the final king that mankind wants to accept. Um, if you recall, John said that there would be many antichrists and the spirit of antichrist. Oh, what about reality? Do we see anything like that today? This next video, which I hope we can play, um, I'm trying to, uh, that brings the scripture to life and puts flesh on the antichrist spirit at work today. What parallels can we draw between scripture and reality? So if you can, Nick. So... 
this is what I wanted to kind of connect what we just read with what's going on in our day. Is it kind of in reality? Do we kind of see something like this or not really? And so the Bible, the, the, the beauty of it is that it does um, reflect reality. It's not like something that's really far out there. But if you guys caught that, I mean, Yuval Noah Harari is basically a Jewish man. Um, he's really up there in academia, and he's under the uh, World Economic Forum, uh, which is really the, uh, uh, the point of the spear, basically, in uh, technology and advancements and looking for a futuristic world. Basically, the idea is we don't know what the future is. It could be really good and go towards utopia, which, you know, for thousands of years, um, you know, mankind has been trying to build this perfect society and has failed and uh, they don't realize that it's the sin within, that that's what keeps us from being able to achieve what we want because human beings are sinful. And so the other option is utopia, which is, yeah, utopia for sinless creatures. But the Bible um, and the reality that God writes to us is that, no, it's not going to be utopia until I'm reigning and I'm here and I'm ruling. And we're going to get a glimpse of that in a little bit um, as we read uh, verses 36 to 45. And so I'll just kind of pick up verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what, he has, been, for what has been determined shall be done. So many more titles can be given to this final king. As we list a few more to make a more clear picture can take shape. They include the little horn, Daniel 7, 8, that's what he's called, the worthless shepherd, Zechariah 11, 16 to 17, the man of sin, the son of perdition, 2 Thessalonians, the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians, and the beast of Revelation 11. The king shall do according to his will. So let's kind of contrast that. The Antichrist is self-willed. How contrary is this to the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I can do, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which sent me. He shall exalt himself, another characteristic. The little horn tries to be a big horn. Again, notice how opposite that was compared to Christ. Paul wrote of, of him, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross, Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8. It's interesting to observe that many men throughout history pro proclaimed to be gods, but only one God became a man and magnify himself above every god. In 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul wrote of the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And in Revelation 13.8, we are also told, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It is a blasphemous rebellion against God which marks the willful king as the final and logical expression of humanism. 
He is the typical representative of that which is against God, that which is our old nature, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The carnal mind of men will turn to the Antichrist, this final king, maybe digital dictatorship. When men choose their own rulers and leaders, what kind of man do they choose? Generally, one like they are. And that is the reason why we are getting some sorry leaders. Leaders are like a mirror to society. If the society is righteous, the leader that rises out of that society will be righteous. But what if the society is declining? Well, we don't have to imagine. We can just turn on the news and find out. Um, God has said right here in the book of Daniel that he will set over the kingdoms of, of this world the basest of rulers. And then this last part, and shall prosper till the indignation be, compl- uh, be accomplished. The Antichrist will be successful for a brief period of time. God will permit this to come to pass during the last half of Daniel's 70th week. Just remember, no matter how bad we might have it in politics or our personal life, it's only for a time and this too shall pass. Let's move on to verse 37 as we wrap this up. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Let's look at the first statement. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. This simply means he shall not adhere to any modern religious background. We know this last king will rise from the Roman Empire, which is modern-day Europe and parts of the Middle East, uh, because the Roman Empire was, was pretty vast, and even parts of Africa. Some have speculated that he would be a Muslim, Well, if he were a Muslim, he wouldn't be a very good one because he would be going against that religion and wouldn't be accepted by either Jews or Muslims. Uh, He could very well be Jewish, but uh, be a secular and humanistic. We see ideas like that coming from Israel today, uh, which is largely secular. World philosophy seems to be gravitating toward a New Age religion of little gods theology. And if you kind of picked up some of that in the video where um, the talks of Uh, creation by intelligent design, our intelligent design, and uh, we're going to be able to go inside the mind and hack humans and so on. That's their um, aspirations. So becoming like God. Let's look at this next part. "Nor Nor the desire of women. There are two theories concerning that statement. Uh, One stating that it refers to the desire of Hebrew women to be the mother of the Messiah. Um, Another more likely suggests that he will not be interested in women. Uh, He will either be abstinent or homosexual. Uh, This is open-ended, and as we get closer to the time that he rises, this description will be crystal clear and obvious. So that's um, something called like progressive illumination, where the closer we get to the event, the more clear it's going to be. All the pieces are going to, you know, it's going to be obvious. Um, final part, he shall magnify himself above all. This is the reality of where our world is headed toward. Today, ideas of utopia are thrown around, and everyone is unsure of what will happen, but the Bible lays it out. Um, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or their foreheads. And no man might buy or sell save he that have the mark, 
or the name of the beast, or the number of his name, Revelation 13, um, 15 to 17. How will he achieve this? I'm not making any predictions, but I find it interesting that we have AI technology, vast computing power, and RFID chips that can be placed under the skin. Um, if, if the Antichrist uses these tools, he can become omniscient like God. Uh, if you think this is far-fetched, China ha has sophisticated surveillance, face recognition technology, and a social credit system, if you were not aware. Uh, basically, if you adhere to the uh, CCP, the Communist Party principles, and you obey, you have a high social credit score. Uh, if you're uh, a minority, like a Christian or something that does not adhere to their um, policies, you can be uh, docked. Uh, social credit score, and that would mean you can't use like transportation, sometimes banking, and other things. It's a very digital dictatorship, and that's what uh, China has been implementing now for the last few years. And that is the reality. Verse 38. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. He will invest into forces, and some translations say forces. Better translated is fortresses. And why? Well, it could be that the world will deteriorate into civil wars, and with the weather getting out of control, climate change, uh, and diseases, perhaps he will offer the population the safety in his fortress, if you just kind of obey me. Um, no big deal, right? But once again, this is open to interpretation. This is what we uh, said before, open-handed, close-handed. This is more of the open-handed stuff. It's interesting always to read the scripture and kind of see what's going on in reality and say, hey, does it match up? Or is the Bible like just totally off into left field? And I think as we kind of read this and, and we see more and more things coming um, into play, we'll see that the Bible is very literal and does reveal itself, that it is true. Verse 39. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. With a foreign god. Uh, we know that behind this man, the Antichrist, Satan empowers him. Uh, as Pastor Ovi said in Daniel chapter 7, this is the unholy trinity, uh, Satan as the counterfeit god, the Antichrist as the counterfeit Christ, and um, the false prophet as the Holy Spirit. So it's a very interesting reversal. And then we're basically at the end. I'm going to just read uh, verses 40 to 45 and make a few closing uh, statements. And basically this will cover his exploits. So I'll pick up at verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. He shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape." He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall flow at his heels. So, I'm sorry, shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. 
Therefore he shall go out with great fury and destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant tents, um, he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. So this last uh, section speaks eschatologically of the exploits that, um, and the events that the Antichrist partakes in. Um, I want to jump down to the final part. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. This is the most reassuring part. God knows the end from the beginning and no matter how hopeless it might seem in that day or how powerful and terrifying a ruler, um, he is nothing to God. God sits in the heavens and laughs. And um, just to kind of reassure everyone, I don't want to leave everyone on a sour note. Um, this is our victory that we get to partake in. Revelation 19, 11 to 21, and I'm almost through. And I have uh, afterwards the conclusion and why. Why is this important? Why did we just go through Daniel 11? So I'll pick up Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses." Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who works signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Take two, take, uh, I'm sorry. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh. So that's the victory. We have just come to the conclusion of the chapter. What a climax, the return of, of Christ, no one shall help him in that day. The destruction of the blasphemous man. We, now we ask ourselves, why prophecy? So this is, this is the, uh, the point. Couldn't God have omitted this last chapter? I want to make a distinction between prophecy and eschatology. Does anyone know the difference kind of throw that word around. Prophecy is like the big umbrella, which includes things fulfilled and other things yet to be fulfilled, while eschatology speak, speaks only of things future for the end. Things that have yet to take place. The Bible is roughly 25% prophecy. The Bible stands al uh, alone among all the other religious texts in the world, 
having predictions hundreds and in some cases thousands of years that were literally fulfilled. Prophecy is the fingerprint of God. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Ultimately, prophecy is there to strengthen our faith. Faith is not a leap into darkness or wishful thinking. It is carefully considered thought and trusting in the words and promises of God. God does not expect us to believe in something when reality tells us not to. God's predictions are accurate and true. He's batting a thousand, if you will. If I were a basketball player and I just made um, 99 free throws, right? I'm not that good, but for the sake of the uh, illustration, how likely are you to trust that I could make the hundredth? You would trust that I could do it, concluding uh, that um, if, if I've done it before, there's no reason why I should miss now. Sorry, I'm getting a little... We can trust in him as we read more scripture, our faith grows. John 14, 29. And now I tell you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. Lastly, prophecy says something about the nature of God. Some atheists argue that God is disconnected from our world, like a clockmaker who made a clock and um, he stepped off uninterested to what happens to that clock. Prophecy proves that God created the world and knows what will happen. Notice how uh, scripture outlined over 200 years of history from Persian Empire down to Antiochus, then thousands of years forward to the last king. Now think for a, mo- a moment. In order for God to know and uh, predict these big things, he must by implication know all the little events that lead up to the big events. Therefore, he must know every day, hour, and second of all human beings in existence. Just one detail being off could alter the course of history. Um, This is like what some people call the butterfly effect theory, in which uh, the detail of a butterfly flapping its wings could cause like vibrations here and like a domino effect and could cause like a storm somewhere on the other side of the world. It's that um, intricate and, and connected. God is so precise and perfect, he knows what will happen and is intimately connected to his universe and by implication his children, you and I today. God sees you and foreknew each and every one of us. No one, here is, is, no one is here by accident. If you are a child of God, we have a forerunner, Christ. All-knowing, all-powerful God that, that will do all his pleasure and has told us be, beforehand in the scriptures and spirit of Jesus Christ. I'll conclude with this final thought, Revelation 19.10. And I fell down at his feet, speaking of John falling down before an angel, And I fell down before his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. And um, just to have that final thought, Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.